Okay, today we're going to be in Joshua 11. In chapter 10, we saw two different types of attacks on the children of Israel by the Canaanite legion, overtly and surreptitiously. You had a bunch of Canaanite uh, kings get together and attack them directly. And you also had the Gibeonites who sneakily made a, uh, a treaty with the children of Israel. Uh, today we're going to see the last major military collusion against the children of Israel, the results of the battle, and the distribution of the land to the tribes. Starting with verse 1. And it came to pass when Jabin, king of Hazor, heard these things, that he sent to Jobab, the king of Madon, to the king of Shimron, to the king of Et- Ashaph, and to the kings who were from the north in the mountains in the plain south of Chinneroth, in the lowland, and in the heights of Dor on the west, to the Canaanites in the east and in the west, the Amorite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite in the mountains, and the Hivite below Hermon in the land of Mizpah. So they went out, they and all their armies with them, as many people as the sand that is on the seashore in multitude, with very many horses and chariots. And when all these kings had met together, they came and camped together at the waters of Merom to fight against Israel. Now, this is a, a precipitation, really, of the conquest of northern Canaan. It's the third of Joshua's campaigns after the central and southern campaigns that we covered prior. I hope this, at this time, I'd like to ask you to kind of take those maps out that we handed out, because there's a lot in here. There's a lot of geography, a lot of places and kind of want to give you familiarity and give you the best idea of what's going on, you know, well-rounded. Okay, Hazor. If you look at Hazor, what you have is the Sea of Galilee, or the Sea of Chenereth, right, to the, uh, the upper portion of the map, and then 10 miles north of that is Hazor. And Hazor means enclosure. It's located in northern Canaan, And it was the last great walled city to fall to the children of Israel. Chinneroth, okay, is the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee had many names over time. It was the Sea of Chinneroth, the Sea of Galilee, and uh, there was another one. The Sea of, I can't think of it, just went out of my head, but I'll remember it halfway through the sermon. Was that? No, but I can't remember it. But anyway... (laughs) Maybe it was Tiberius. But Hazor is 10 miles due north of the Sea of Chenaroth. Now, Dor, if you look on your map, all the way on the west coast is Dor, on the uh, border of the Mediterranean Sea. It's also about halfway down on the map. And then you also have Mount Hermon. Now, take your map and go all the way north, and right in the center there is Mount Hermon as you go up to Syria. Okay. So why do I want you to see this? Because I want you to see, you know, we read these names in the Bible and we kind of read them and we can't pronounce them and we just want to move on to what we think is the meat and potatoes. But if you take it all together, what you find is this. We're covering a lot of ground here. There's a lot of geography. And it's unfamiliar territory to the children of Israel. And it's far away from home base at Gilgal. If you look between... Uh, Hazor and Gilgal, you're talking about 80, 90 miles. And, to make it worse, the enemies had horses and chariots. And, 
the enemy had far more of an army than the children of Israel, and their use of terrain they used against the children of Israel. Kind of reminds me of uh, you know, the whole hunt for bin Laden thing, you know, the Taliban. And if you look at the geography between Afghanistan and Pakistan, there's a lot of mountainous areas, and these people are indigenous peoples to the area. So even with our bombers and our you know, superior air power, it's hard to get to these people. So when those people, indigenous peoples, use especially the mountains against their, their enemies, it, it can be pretty formidable. So taking all this together, I don't know about you, but if it was me and I saw all this stuff, I'd be a little bit nervous if I was in their shoes. From a Canaanite perspective, regardless of what we may believe, the military intelligence um, was pretty good back in those days, as it is today. Word travels fast, and they also used undercover operatives, much like we used the CIA in other uh, foreign lands. So the point is that the Canaanites remaining had this history of what was going on since the children of Israel crossed the Jordan and before. They're no doubt familiar with the walls of Jericho coming down, no doubt familiar with Ai being defeated, Rahab and her family being spared, and the Gibeonites being protected, protected and the central and southern campaigns of Joshua defeating the Canaanites. So no doubt they were privy to this. So as a northern Canaanite, what do you think should be their next move? Maybe repentance? Maybe casting away their false gods, those useless gods who haven't saved them, their, their brethren in, this, in the, the central and southern campaigns, right? In search of the true God? Maybe a little humility and an attempt to make peace? Maybe submission? Not a chance. They're going to keep fighting. <laughs> So they're going to, they're just going to, to the bitter end, they're just going to keep fighting, right? To me, this is a picture of a hard heart and stubbornness. Now, I don't want to confuse you because as we go further in the text, we're going to see that God eventually hardened their hearts anyway. He hardened their hearts to stand their ground. But as we saw in the case of Pharaoh, Pharaoh hardened his heart, his heart a few times before God solidified him in that state. And I believe that. I believe you harden your heart, you harden your heart, you harden your heart, and then eventually God just solidifies there. And he uses you as an example to your detriment for his glory. Right? So that's what you have going on here. So then my next question would be, have you ever been in a losing situation and you kept fighting anyway? <laughs> Good response. Maybe a family situation, <laughs> okay? Maybe somebody wronged you and you just can't let it go. Maybe a job situation. I think I'm probably hitting a few nerves here. But fighting for the sake of fighting. Sometimes it's just good to concede, to submit, to let it go. Now, there's not a, a direct application here, except for the fact that we can dig our heels in, Right? over a losing battle where the Lord will not allow victory. <laughs> Apparently many have been there, including myself. But even as Christians, the Lord is not always in our battles. We, we kind of have this sanctimonious attitude that we're saved. So everything we do, every person that we don't like, the Lord, is, he's, he's on our side. <laughs> it doesn't work out like that. Now, when I prepare my sermon, sometimes things come into my head, and I'm not sure if it's the Holy Spirit or my wacky thinking. But all I could think about is that Kenny Rogers song years ago where he said, you got to know when to hold them, know when to fold them, know when to walk away, know when to run. <laughs> is that good for the worship team? What do you think, Dave? 
But seriously, sometimes we got to know when to fold them. We got to know when to walk away, and we got to know when to just run. It's it's not a good battle that we're in, right? So you see, the northern Canaanites band together with their horses and chariots and camp at the waters of Meram, which is, if you look at your map, the Sea of Chenareth or Galilee. And you know what? You're right, Arnie. It was Tiberius also. It's, it's right. You're right on that. It just came to me. Um, if you look at the, the Sea of, of Chenareth uh, to the left side, the waters of Meram, it's not real clear on these maps, but it runs tangentially from, from the northwest, northwest, okay? So it's it pretty much, in, in English, it's to your left and it goes upward, okay? So that's where the waters of Merom are. It's kind of like a dividing line there. From a temporal point of view, this is a formidable site. They have a huge army, the Canaanites. They have modern equipment. Remember, horses and chariots in those days was big, big time. If you didn't have horses and chariots and your enemy did, you better have a lot more manpower. Uh, and they were on their own turf. Now, I'm going to make an equivalent here because, see, I like you to visualize stuff. See, to me, the Bible comes alive when you try to visualize everything that's going on instead of just muddling through it. You know, let's, let's try to really get into this. The equivalent to me is like telling, God telling the farmers of Mexico to invade the United States on our own turf with our tanks, planes, and choppers, and they have farm implements. There's the equivalent there, Okay. Now, I'm sure that God gave some orders to the children of Israel that they just didn't want to heed. Joshua, what? God wants us to do what? Do you see what they got going over there? Now, it's the same with us, though. Aren't there some things that the Lord asks us to do that we just think are, uh, isn't, you know, at first you think, no way. <laughs> but then, of course, you, you submit to the Lord. Because we, too, will face those similar spiritual battles at the waters of Merom. And incidentally, Merom means the high place, okay? You had a lot of uh, differences in, evola- uh, in elevation going on here. We'll all face a time when evil will gather together to take a stand against us, and evil won't budge. And we must put our flag in the ground and say, you know what, I'm going to fight this battle. We all face those stands taken against us spiritually that we must conquer because it won't go away. A good friend of mine and a pastor has a phrase, <laughs> And he, he calls it a hill to die for. <laughs> Some of you may know who it is. It's Louis Solis. <laughs> but he says, uh, no, a lot of things, Louis, you ask him or you make a decision or you, you want him to make a decision. And he's pretty, pretty cool about most things. And then some things he'll just say, this is a hill to die for. And he's, it's that picture of you're on that, that hill. And, you know, this is a battle that you're fighting and you believe strongly in your convictions and, uh, you know, the Word of God says this, and you're not going to budge from that hill. So, a lot of good uh, allusions there. Verse 6. But the Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid because of them, for tomorrow about this time I will deliver all of them slain before Israel. You shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. Now, God doesn't speak for the sake of speaking. If God speaks and says something, there's, there's something important behind it. God knew that, I believe that God knew that they were nervous. That's why he said, you know, do not fear. This is, what's, this is the future before it happens. So, um, and again, because of the way I explained the setup earlier, we can see why the children of Israel might have been afraid. Uh, many prior commands to wipe out the Canaanites, and now he's telling them again. He keeps telling them. I mean, this is Moses. Was, it went all the way back to Moses, what you got to do. But God keeps telling them, you have to conquer, you have to conquer, Right? 
The children of Israel at some time became very weary of war, and they didn't fully wipe out the Canaanites. They just wanted peace. I've, I've heard that said. I just want peace, peace for the sake of peace. Now, because my wife is here, I'm going to explain what hamstringing the horses are because <laughs> she loves animals. Now, I used to read this, and I've got to say I'm an animal lover too, and I'd feel bad for the horses. I figured, you know, they, they'd cut their legs and they'd hamstring and The poor horse would be crippled. They couldn't get anything to eat, and they'd lay out in the field and die. It's not really that way. What they would do is to hamstring a horse would be to cut the tendon at the back of the hock so that the horses wouldn't have speed for warfare, but they were still good for agricultural use. You have so many muscles. Horses have so many muscles, few muscles they don't need. Uh, so they could still plow the fields and get their food, but, you know, they, they didn't have that, that explosive power which was needed in, in terms of warfare. So that's what hamstringing is. Uh, burning chariots with fire. Effectively, the children of Israel had to incapacitate any remaining Canaanites from using these weapons of warfare anymore. So it's, it's commensurate to going into uh, enemy territory and disabling their jets, disabling their tanks, collecting their guns and burning them so that they can't use it against you, right? Verse 7. So Joshua and all the people of war with him came against them suddenly by the waters of Merom, and they attacked them. And the Lord delivered them into the hand of Israel, who defeated them and chased them to greater Sidon, to the brook Misraphath, and to the valley of Mizpah eastward. They attacked them until they left none of them remaining. So Joshua did to them as the Lord had told him. He hamstrung their horses and burned their chariots with fire. Now, let's go to the map again to look at a few of these locations. You have, uh, you have uh, greater, greater Sidon and the brook Misraphath. Actually, I'm looking at this. Okay, Sidon. All the way at the top of the map. Uh, right, right at the uh, Mediterranean coast there, that's pretty far. Uh, we're talking Lebanon, modern-day Lebanon. That's how far they, they sent them out. And there's a, the book Mis, Brook Misraphath, which isn't represented very well here in the Valley of Mizpah eastward. So he's just showing you all the different locations that they went and they chased them. Now understand this. When they would chase these guys, it wasn't like they chased them down the block. I mean, you're, you're talking... The Mediterranean down to, you know, the, the eastern border by Syria. Uh, it is a pretty good distance that the children of Israel are covering. These battles, man, uh, I don't know if it took a day or it took a few weeks. I'm not really sure the time frame, but these guys must have been exhausted. I believe, of course, God gave them supernatural strength to do what they needed to do. Because if somebody's fleeing from you and you've got to chase them, it takes even more energy. There was actually a, a, a battle technique that the ancient armies and navies used to do, and they would feign that they were being beaten. And actually, you saw it in the Bible. We saw that with uh, some of the walled cities. And what happened was the, uh, an army would pretend to run and feign running, and get, or, or even in boats, they would get them to go row faster after them, and then they would turn around and they would engage them with Greek fire or certain things from the, uh, uh, the fleet for you and people who are interested in warfare. It's very interesting. It's a, a technique that's used to feign weakness. But anyway, if you're chasing somebody, you, you, you'll lose breath. You know, you'll, you'll get winded. So it was, it was a big undertaking to chase these people to, the, to all the corners of this land. Verse 10. Joshua turned back at that time and took Hazor and struck its king with the sword. For Hazor was formerly the head of all those kingdoms. 
And they struck all the people who were in it with the edge of the sword, utterly destroying them. There was none left breathing. Then he burned Hazor with fire. So all the cities of those kings and all their kings Joshua took and struck them with the edge of the sword. He utterly destroyed them as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded. So you see the strategy. You see they chase these guys all the way down, which, which we just talked about, and then they destroy, in essence, headquarters. Hazor's headquarters. They go back and they destroy headquarters. Um, you know, when I'm going through this, I'm starting to think for some reason terrorism just keeps coming to my mind. Talked about Afghanistan and Pakistan and, you know, fighting those, the war on terror. And uh, I'm looking at this, too, where they had to destroy, in essence, the terrorist training camp. You see that Hazor gets a different judgment than the other cities, and we'll go into that. Uh, Gilgal, uh, and again, it's almost like a, you've heard of the, the, the book. I've read that when I was in high school, A Tale of Two Cities. You kind of see two cities here. You see Gilgal, which was a type of Jerusalem, all right, before they took Jerusalem. This is many years before taking Jerusalem. Gilgal is a type of Jerusalem. It's a spiritual center. It's the center of regrouping. Okay, everything, when Joshua launched his campaigns, he would launch it from Gilgal. Uh, then you see Hazor. Hazor in this northern campaign, campaign is really a type of Babylon. Uh, Babylon was always a type of the world, worldliness, sin, and evil. So you got your two, your Gilgal and your, and your uh, Hazor going on here. Gilgal must always destroy Hazor, especially for the Christian. And the question to us is, what camp do we dwell in, Christians? Are we in the camp of Hazor or are we in the camp of Gilgal? And probably, if we're all honest with ourselves, including me, sometimes we have a, a desire for the, for the worldliness. And we've got we to just come back to our senses and say, I don't belong in Hazor, I belong in Gilgal. So, you know, it, it's, it's really important to know where you dwell in, because you've got to be in one city or the other. You can't be out in the open. You're either in Hazor or you're in Gilgal. Verse 13. But as for the cities that stood on their mounds, Israel burned none of them, except Hazor only, which Joshua burned. And all the spoil of these cities and the livestock the children of Israel took as booty for themselves. But they struck every man with the edge of the sword until they had destroyed them and they left none breathing. As the Lord had commanded Moses his servant, so Moses commanded Joshua, and so Joshua did. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord had commanded Moses. So Hazor is destroyed and burned to the ground, but the rest of the cities are destroyed and they're ransacked. They take booty. They take the plunder. Uh, you know, so they, they didn't completely destroy the cities, but they, they ransacked them. He left none breathing. I tell you what, it, it seems barbaric, archaic, brutal. But you have to remember, God gave these people several centuries to repent, and they didn't. Now, some did, but most didn't. I used to read the Old Testament, and I would, you know, as a young Christian, you have to realize that God knows. God knows better than we do. But I would read the Old Testament and it would confuse me because I'd say, boy, that's pretty brutal. But let's, let's just take this apart here. Again, the, the word, and I don't know why, but this particular section, terrorism, keeps coming into my mind. The best analogy I could give you in today's world is, again, terrorism. This is a disease that's so satanic, terrorism, that five-year-old boys walk through the streets of some cities carrying AK-47s and they know how to use them. Five, six-year-old kids, a little bit younger than my son, walking around with fully automatic Kalashnikovs, and they know how to use them. There's a, um, I think it's on YouTube. I didn't look at it. I'm just not going to look at it. I don't think there's no any edification for me to look at it. But apparently there's a, a, a new video of an 11-year-old boy 
who beheads a man. Um, you know, radical Islam, the whole deal. You got, I mean, you just gotten younger and younger kids doing satanic, vicious, brutal things. You have five-year-old girls in grade school who are singing songs about blowing themselves up and killing Jews. Um, this is a form of religion that's so satanic and destructive in some areas where they've managed to annihilate or subjugate the infidels, then they end up turning on each other. So now that I see the world of terrorism that we've lived in, that we've lived in, because the world has lived in it longer than us, but we've lived in it since, you know, 9-11, and before that it was mostly our troops overseas, but, you know, we kind of had our heads in the sand. Uh, but now we're living it. We're realizing the reality of this satanic uh, thing called terrorism. Uh, but now let's look at the Canaanites. They were probably as bad and probably worse because they sacrificed their children to uh, false gods. They burned them alive and they did, did awful things uh, to them that it's probably not really edifying to speak of, but you could just use your imagination. doesn't matter how young the kid was, they would do these awful things. As a matter of fact, they found, uh, I've seen pictures of them, they found uh, earthen vessels, uh, small earthen vessels, and when you open it up, there's the bones of little children. And there was a certain thing, procedures that they would do to these kids, and then they would collect their bones in these vessels and keep them in their homes. So they're pretty sick people. So now, you know, again, as a mature Christian, too, we know that God is always right. I don't have really a problem with this, you know. And I'm really going off on a side note here, but we've been brainwashed, especially in the United States, to believe that Christians are supposed to be touchy-feely. Okay, there's judgment. In Revelation, there's judgment, too. Now, judgment is not for us to execute as Christians. We're supposed to love people with the love of Christ. But I got no problem for the time that God comes and he judges the world because, you know what, the world deserves it. And we deserve it, but we've been given a pass by the blood of Jesus. And they can have that too. So in case this sermon is ever used against me, I want to make sure I'm very thorough with what I say. <laughs> so, But I'm actually enjoying going through the book of Joshua and seeing what the Lord used him to do. It's trite to say it's a common expression, but this is a picture of sin, and it must be wiped out. You see a lot in the Old Testament. You see a lot of types. You see a lot of things in the Old Testament that are fulfilled in the New Testament, um, types, right? But to me, the Old Testament has a lot of types, and you see a lot of types of, of Jesus Christ, especially Joshua as a savior and a deliverer as a, on a minor scale, of course. But the Old Testament to me is one big type of st a struggle between the flesh and the spirit. You see this constant back and forth balance between the flesh and the spirit, flesh and the spirit. Okay, you see that in the Old Testament. If we, have, as God's people, are not engaged every day in the battle against sin, it will consume us. And that's what I see here, too. We can never take a rest from battling sin. We cannot afford to leave any of it standing or breathing, especially in our own lives. I fight my sin when it comes to dealing with my wife. I fight selfishness. I fight a lot of things, you know, to try to serve my wife because I'm, a, I'm supposed to be a husband, right? I fight my sin when it comes to dealing with my son, uh, maybe in allowing him to do things or say things that he shouldn't do or say because I'm being spiritually lazy, okay? And I fight that because I say, well, you know, you can't be his friend. You've got to be his father. So you, we're always fighting sin. My behavior at work, you know, there's temptations at work. I fight sin in my life when I, I have to behave when I go out, you know, and I put the uniform on. And, you know, I fight my sin when it comes to difficult people in the church. Of course, that doesn't include anybody here because <laughs> only the shining stars come out on Wednesday nights. But you get the picture. 
Sin doesn't rest. It never takes a vacation. You know, it won't stop until it gets a foot in the door. Um, and we can criticize the children of Israel. And as again, as a new believer, I was like everybody else, criticizing the children of Israel. How could they do that? They saw the parting of the Red Sea. They saw the water come out of the rock. They saw the quail and the manna. And you get into this ridiculous, anachronistic, um, you know, going back into time and criticizing the children of Israel. And we can criticize them here for not finishing the job. But what about us? Sometimes we get tired of fighting the fight because it's, it's a battle that goes on every day. And like I said before, people say, I want peace, peace for the sake of peace. There's some battles we just can't stop fighting until the Lord comes for us. And that, one of the biggest battles is sin and worldliness. But Moses instructed Joshua, okay? Uh, we see that. We see that God spoke to Moses. Moses spoke to Joshua. And Joshua did what he was told. Again, Moses got his instructions from the Lord. Joshua trusted Moses because Moses spoke the oracles of God, okay? He trusted Moses implicitly. And I look at that in leadership, whether my elders are here or somebody's listening to it on the CD, pastors, elders, those in ministry, those in leadership. People, rightly or wrongly, will hang on our every word because they trust us, okay? Those men under Joshua trusted Joshua. No matter what Joshua did, they trusted him. David's men, David said, oh, I'm so thirsty. His men risked their lives to get him some stinking water, you know? So rightly or wrongly, people will look at those in leadership and hang on our every words. And, you know, people in leadership, we need to be prayer about our counsel and not take it lightly. can't tell you how many times I've heard accounts of pastors or those in leadership giving advice, whether medical advice or financial advice to people, and maybe not really thinking it through, and those people were harmed because of bad advice. Um, that, that's a problem. That's a problem. So those in leadership, let's really pray before we flippantly give somebody a response to a question that they may have for us. Verse 16. A lot, a lot of stuff in here, I think. So Joshua took all this land, the mountain country, all the south, all the land of Goshen, the lowland, the Jordan plain, the mountains of Israel and its lowlands, from Mount Halak to the ascent to Seir, even as far as Baal Gad in the valley of Lebanon below Mount Hermon. He captured all their kings and struck them down and killed them. Joshua made war a long time with all those kings. Let's go to the geography again. I think this map pretty much uh, shows most of it, but Goshen. If you're going down south on your map here, you, you see below the Salt Sea, if the map could extend further south and west, you're going to get into the Sinai Peninsula. And then after the Sinai Peninsula, you run into Egypt. Okay, so that's where you're going when you're going left, which is west. So Goshen is, uh, you know, it's a pretty good stretch there. Mount Seir and Mount uh, Halak is the land of Edom. Mount Seir was always a picture of Edom. Uh, Mount Halak, Edom, if you look at the Salt Sea at the bottom there, or the Dead Sea, e Edom is southeast of that, uh, and that's east of the Sinai Peninsula. Lebanon, I mean, you don't get any further out to these borders. Lebanon, again, all the way up where you see Tyre and Sidon. Uh, Modern-day Lebanon fits up there, but Lebanon is that area uh, along the Mediter Mediterranean Sea to the northwest. And Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon, again, it's almost to the top of your page in the center. Uh, it's way north and west as you, I'm sorry, way north 
as you get towards Syria. So you're talking, again, a lot of coverage here. But we'll see over time that this coverage, you know, that God told them, actually God told them in Deuteronomy that uh, they were supposed to take from the Mediterranean Sea all the way to the Euphrates, which is, which they would have been uh, obedient to children of Israel. Right now they'd have, they'd have oil, okay, because now you're talking about uh, Iraq, all right, you're talking about Syria, you're talking about Jordan. So if the children of Israel were really uh, obedient, they would have had a heck of a lot more land and it would have been better for their descendants. Uh, so anyway, over time, it, it slacked off the, the borders, the coverage that the children of Israel, Israel took. And then under David and Solomon, you see that in those kingdoms, the borders were, were filled again and then slacked off again. So you see this constant ebbing and flow of the borders. All right. But Joshua made a long war with those kings, it says. Some people, and I don't know, but it's believed to be five to seven years long, this war, um, this war here. And I, again, I think of, again, I, I, the, the picture of terrorism just keeps coming back into my head. I think of the war on terror. It's, again, it's cliche, but the Americans and the Brits, you know, we and the Brits, since World War II, we're starting to not really have the fortitude to do what it takes to fight uh, terrorism. And eventually it's going to come to us again. I think we're too comfortable. And if I, I can make the analogy with Christians is a lot of times as Christians, we're so entrenched in the world because we're so surrounded by it. I think it'll probably be a lot easier to be a Christian in uh, some remote village in Nigeria or something than in New Jersey because we have so many worldly influences. We have the cell phone. We've got the Blackberry, which they've nicknamed Crackberry because it's addictive. You know, the email you got. Everybody can get you, you know. Even if you Google somebody's name on the Internet, you can find out where they live. So you, you just you can't be anonymous. Google Earth, it's the big satellite. It shows you just where your house is. So you're not, there's no anonymity anymore in the world, um, especially here. But I think that, again, we're supposed to be live in the world but not to be of the world. Unfortunately, a lot of those, influence creep, those influences creep into a Christian's life. So my question to you is, are you ready for the long war? Because as long as you're alive and as long as you call yourself a Christian, you're going to be fighting this war, whether you like it or not. Uh, we, you know, there's no way to just bury your head in the sand on that one, or me either. Verse 19. There was not a city that made peace with the children of Israel except the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeon. All the others they took in battle. For it was of the Lord to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle, that he might utterly destroy them. And that they might receive no mercy, but that he might destroy them as the Lord had commanded Moses. Now, uh, there's the, the hardening of their hearts here, um, of the Canaanites. 400 years, roughly, they had this, this time to repent and do the right thing, and they didn't. And now comes judgment time. Uh, and again, we've had this discussion, whether it was the flood, whether it was Sodom and Gomorrah, whether it was the, the northern uh, Canaanites, God gives people so much time to repent. He gives them such a space to repent. And if they don't do it, judgment comes. You know, eventually you're going to bow, the knee to, bow your knee to the Lord. And you could do it through adoration, like hopefully we've all done. We just love Jesus and receive him as our Lord and Savior. Or we can do it as obligation. One day every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus is Lord. And I'm thankful that, um, you know, I, and I don't know. I'm sure each one of you have a personal testimony, but I, I uh, rebelled a few times, and finally I said, you know, this is right. Why, why do I keep running? 
But I'm thankful that God gave me one more chance. And God is merciful. <laughs> he gave me that one more chance, and I'm thankful for that. And I haven't looked back since. Verse 21. And at that time, Joshua came and cut off the Anakim from the mountains, from Hebron, from Debir, from Anab, from all the mountains of Judah, and from all the mountains of Israel. Joshua utterly destroyed them with their cities. None of the Anakim were left in the land of the children of Israel. Uh, They remained only in Gaza, in Gath, and in Ashdod. So Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had said to Moses. And Joshua gave it as an inheritance to Israel according to their divisions by their tribes. Then the land rested from war. Anakim. If you've been around for a while, your name probably sounds familiar. This isn't Anakim Skywalker, okay? (laughs) Now, who was the director of Star Wars? Was it George Lucas? He must have read the Bible because the Bible predates him. But Anakim, Endor, he got all those terms from the scripture. So he's a plagiarist. But anyway, Anakim... The I am at the end in Hebrew denotes plurality. So their descendants, plural, their descendants from Anak. Anak, incidentally, means long-necked. These people were giants. They were greatly feared by the ten spies, minus Joshua and Caleb. The ten spies were like, no way, man, they're big. Mm -mm, We ain't going in there. We can't take these guys. And that was under that Kadesh Barnea failure, if you remember that um, southwestern portion that they tried to get in the first time and they brought back a bad report, except for Joshua and Caleb. Uh, if you look at Kadesh Barnea and you look at some of these towns mentioned, they're, they're close by. So no doubt they ran into or they spied on these Anakim and they were like, these guys are awfully big. There's no way we're going in there. Uh, incidentally, I think that uh, Dave is from the Anakim family. <laughs> no. Honestly, the, the Anakim were about nine feet tall, so they got Dave by at least another two and a half feet. All right? Just kidding, Dave. Sorry. But what you have is the uh, Genesis 6-4. And again, we can go through that when we go into Genesis. Genesis 6-4 it says there were giants in the land uh, at this time and even afterward, meaning pre-Diluvian and post-Diluvian, meaning the flood. Uh, so you had this this... This issue with with the giants and the uh, mating between this hybrid race between the fallen angels and women and it's it's a theory, but uh, they, they, these guys were these huge giants and they were men of renown. They were some were wiped out in the flood, but you get a picture that it may have happened at a later date. So my point is, why were these ten? And let's just go back to the ten spies. Why were they so terrified? Because it was literal. They were really ter- terrified of these people because they were giants. So these people were pretty, uh, pretty f- scary looking. And then when we go into uh, later on in the scripture, we see that Goliath was one of these guys. He was a giant from Gath. He was nine feet tall. And again, th- the children of Israel were afraid. David was like, he's insulting you know, the Lord here. What, what are you doing? What are you, what are you guys afraid of this guy? Nobody wanted to go up against Goliath because he was big. He was, you know, their best warriors probably figured, how, how are we going to take this guy? He's just tremendous. Where do we start? It's like chopping down a tree. So I believe that it's literal. I believe that these guys were literally giants. Um, so they had good reason to fear, but they also had a better reason not to fear because God was on their side. And we know how the story goes, wandering for four uh, decades because of their f- lack of faith. And in verse 23, the last verse here, what we see is the dividing up of the land to the individual tribes of the children of Israel now that the majority of the strongholds and the problematic cities are destroyed. 
My question is this. Why did God leave some of them? If you look closely, the Anakim, some of them were left, okay? Gath and Gaza and some of these areas still had these inhabitants in them. Why did, why did God allow them to leave these guys? It's speculation, but I, I think the answer is that, you know, it's a picture of God's not going to clean up everything for us. There's just some things we need to show initiative on. You know, we need to be obedient to God. We definitely need to be obedient. If he tells you something to do or he's clear about a directive, you be obedient. But I think sometimes as Christians, we, we lack initiative. We just, well, if God's not specifically telling me to do this, I'm not going to do it. I'm just going to go about my life. Is it, am I right? I think we lack, Christians lack initiative sometimes. Um, could, it, could it have been a test for them? I don't know. Um, Sometimes I wonder, do we even want to clean up all the Anakim in our lives? You know, sometimes we don't want to. So it's an interesting thing to look at. As we come to a close, uh, these major battles for Canaan, God again gave the children of Israel the victory. Uh, he, God gave them the victory, not Joshua. As we're going through this book, we see that the only thing we could attribute to Joshua is his obedience, which of course is a big part. Uh, at the time of Jesus, I'm sure there was a lot of people named Jesus, Joshua. It's the same name. Uh, no doubt a lot of people were named this, and we do see some other people with that name. Uh, Jesus Barsabbas, uh, Jesus Barabbas, Jesus Justice. I think there was a Barsabbas too. Uh, so there, uh, at that time, you know, people were definitely named after this Joshua, this military hero. But remember, the victory didn't come from Joshua. It came from God. Uh, oftentimes these conquests looked impossible, and they were, but God gave the victory. And I've, he I've heard this uh, phrase, and I believe it originated in Calvary Chapel, but where God guides, God provides. The promises and the blessings are always available. They're ours for the taking. And if he's saying, uh, you know, I want you to go here, he's going to provide the means to go there and the means to take these lands, right? And the last thing is we just need three things to accomplish them. The first one is faith, the faith that God loves us and God will deliver us. The children of Israel had a measure of faith, but that measure of faith did grow. I believe it grew. And just like it's the same thing with us. The Bible says, we, you know, the, it, faith is a gift. It's given as a gift from God, but it also can be cultivated. It also can grow. Okay? Uh, faith is what makes us who we are as believers. Now, if I'm talking to God and I'm praying by myself and I'm looking up at the ceiling and I'm talking to him, the fact that I'm looking up and I'm talking to a ceiling tells me that I have faith. Because otherwise, I'd have to be out of my mind if I didn't think somebody was listening, you know, right? I'm talking to sheetrock. So faith. Faith is the first thing we need to accomplish these things. The second thing is obedience. This is the receptivity part on our half, on our behalf. This is the part where we, the receiving end of the relationship, that obedience. Joshua was receptive to God's instructions. And the second part of the equation is Obedience. Are we obedient? You know, we either are or we aren't. It's very simple. There's no middle ground on that. It's like you're pregnant. You're either pregnant or you're not pregnant. You're not half pregnant, right? And the third thing is, honestly, I think this is left out a lot, is being blameless. Now, let me qualify that. One of the requirements for an elder or a pastor or anyone in leadership is the person has to be blameless. Psalm 66:18. Two two quick scriptures. But certainly, are, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. 
Isaiah 59.2, and there's, there's more to the passage there. But your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. So this has to be part of the equation. What does it mean? Does it mean blamelessness is sinlessness? Absolutely not. Okay, that's not the case here. There's a difference. But we have to put away that persistent sin, those strongholds in our lives. And I'm speaking to me just as much as I'm speaking to you. <laughs> this isn't a berating session here. And if we take it all back to uh, a summary here, a conclusion is that this whole thing about faith, obedience, and especially blamelessness is evidenced or typed in the annihilation of these evil, evil inhabitants from these key cities in, in Canaan. These people, these Canaanites, this, this sin, this stronghold, this worldliness, this, this, uh, all these things that they were doing represents that, that, that element that has to be annihilated. Okay? And, I, and if you look at this in that way, these northern Canaanites, central, southern, we're all a picture of that sin and worldliness that has to be rooted out of our lives, the inhabitants that have to be rooted out of our lives. Let's pray.